Welcome to another episode of What Would Mozart Do? As the UK's National Health Service celebrates 72 years this week, I am joined by Alex Aldrin, a doctor and tenor whose singing in hospitals during the coronavirus epidemic inspired people as far afield as Argentina. Today we talk about identity within the career path you are taking, the value of the arts and the need to maintain a constant two-way conversation between those who create the arts and those who fund it. Alex, thank you so much for, for joining me. I didn't set specific questions or anything. I just thought this would be a nice time to just chat and to catch up because you, you had a very interesting career path, which I just... Just tell me a bit about it. Just give a general sure. overview. Yeah, no, it's been a bit sort of meandering and a bit unconventional, I guess. There are quite a lot of singers around who've done various other things because, yeah, well, I guess voices, particularly for opera, you know, they do mature a little bit later. So there are people who just kind of they don't necessarily discover that they have a have a voice or an instinct for it until a bit later. But that wasn't really the case for me exactly. I mean, I. Grew up in a very musical family. I played the cello. I kind of was really on the fence about whether to go to music college to study cello. But then I decided to do medicine, really because I was kind of interested in people and, and science. And I think I've always been kind of inquisitive, but also the whole uh, notion of the Renaissance man also really appealed to me as well. Right. <laughs> I thought, well, I just thought that was great. You know, you read about these people who are kind of scientists and artists and philosophers and poets and you know, what an amazing way to be a really kind of complete, well-rounded human being, you know, to yeah, really, really so. get the most out of life. An amalgamation of all these different paths. Exactly. And I, I think that's why, you know, some of the singers I've met have been some of the most fulfilled people I've ever met, because that, it's, it's similar in that sense. You know, you have to be so many different things to be a good singer. And, and that's partly why it will never, you know, the quest for kind of, self-improvement will never end because there's so much to it you have to be a problem solver and a team player and mm -hmm. an actor and a kind of archaeologist to kind of under d discover all the kind of layers to your character and the piece and the mm -hmm. score and then of course you have to be a musician there's so much to it uh, you know and a communicator it's 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 and a plus that obviously six languages you know it's, it's exactly like, it's, just, it's immense <laughs> And that's what really appealed to me, I think. So when I, so I did, I really enjoyed medicine and I had always sung in, in choirs and things and always kind of really enjoyed it and always just, you know, not worked particularly hard at it, just enjoyed it. And then, yeah, about halfway through medical school, it actually kind of came about because I did a cello recital and my plan up to that point had been to sort of try and be a sort of professional standard cellist and kind of do some really great stuff alongside my medicine. Yeah, um, as you do. I mean, <laughs> just, yeah. just well, save lives and play the cello at the same time. <laughs> I mean, some people, some people <laughs> it. But anyway, basically, I did this recital and I kind of realized that it was pretty much impossible if I wanted to have any, other, any time to do anything else. Because mm -hmm. there's no way I'm going to be able to get in a few hours of cello practice a day, plus, you know, a long shift, plus have time to see any friends or family or do anything else yes. important. So... Um, that's when I just thought, well, maybe I'll give singing a go as my main hobby because 
you don't really have to practice. <laughs> was my, was my thinking. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's yeah, what exactly. they all say. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So I thought I'd give that a go. Mm-hmm. And then so I got a scholarship at Birmingham University with the, with the CBSO chorus, actually. So I sang the CBSO chorus. And basically the feedback I got from my teachers was just that I should quit medicine immediately and be a singer, which was kind of a surprise and also like a really lovely compliment. And also struck me as terrible advice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'd I'd love you to unpack those three points a little bit more. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was obviously really, I was kind of discovering my voice and it was really exciting to hear, you know, other people say say that there was some real potential there, you know, they were Mm -hmm. really excited. And then, you know, that made me think like, wow, I mean, maybe maybe I could do this as a job. You know, I really hadn't considered that. So yeah, so that was that was great. But then, in terms of um, whether it was a good idea or not, well, I chatted to a few singers about it actually, um, mm-hmm. and most of them said, regardless of um, you know whether you might what your chances may be, you're, you'd probably be well advised to finish your medical degree first. Yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, I was halfway through by that point, and. Yeah, I think that was good advice. I mean, your voice does take longer to mature, and there aren't many people, certainly not men, who start opera careers before their kind of late 20s. Really, it's pretty rare. Plus, I really enjoyed it. So, yeah, I think that that was good advice. And basically, I decided from around that point that I wanted to be a singer, but I was going to finish my medical degree. Um, I was going to keep that as a... Fall back, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I sort of. Yeah, kind of, and I mean, also, but I wanted to. I wanted to get something. For, I, I, I was quite keen to work as well, because you know, when you put in, I'd already put in three years, and you know, then put in another three. Exactly. And um, I had a great time at university, but I wanted, to, I wanted to make some money, so I was quite keen to actually qualify and get registered. So I did that. I worked for two years after that. Whereas when I was at university, it functioned really well, actually, because I basically, singing was kind of really my top priority. And I, had, and I got the med school fantastic when they gave me time off to go and do professional productions and things. And during that time, I sang with uh, the Barber Opera that I made my debut with then. Mm-hmm. Um, did lots of university productions and things, obviously. Did a professional production of West Side Story. Uh, and, I, and I sang with British Youth Opera as well. Fantastic. Um, and also, I basically got in with a um, choir called the Armonica Consort and got to be their tenor soloist for three years, pretty much. I, just, I got a huge amount of oratorio experience. So that was all really good. But then when I actually started doing my foundation years in northeast London, I just had zero time. I think I did one concert in two yeah. years of Matthew Passion. And that was just no good. I just thought, I mean, this isn't what I signed up for, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I really wasn't happy with that. And also, I suppose I was conscious when I'd been at university and I was doing lots of singing, mm-hmm. I really felt like I was kind of keeping pace with my colleagues that were at music college. Right. The ones that were doing undergrads and postgrads. Yeah, in my, when I was doing my foundation training, I, sort of, I was becoming conscious that actually people my age were becoming really, really good. Yeah. <laughs> and I wasn't doing any singing and I was kind of, you know, not, not progressing. And I thought, well, you know, if I really, if I do want, to have this 
possibility of being a professional singer, you know, I really need to give it a go. So I decided at that point to go and apply for music colleges. Okay. Um, and I went to the Royal Academy Opera School. Right. And, and uh, roughly, uh, sorry, what, what age were you at that point? I think I was 26. Right. Yeah, when I started at the Academy. Okay. So, so, yeah, that was great, actually. So I was kind of starting opera school, and I'd say I was probably the average age for that, you know, mm. my colleague. Because most of them had done, if they hadn't done something else, they'd done an undergrad and a postgrad and sometimes a couple of years in between. So I was really happy to, to be allowed straight onto the opera course, even though I hadn't had any kind of formal training, mm-hmm. not any conservatoire training before. Yeah. Um, so Academy definitely did take a bit of a gamble on me, which was very nice of them. <laughs> um, and to be honest, it was, um, it was a brilliant experience in a lot of ways, but I think probably like a lot of people who come to music college, I had some misconceptions about what it would give me. Right. Or, or just how it would work, how that kind of exchange would work. And I think, yeah, I, I guess I, I, I psychologically, I think I was going through a lot of the things that, mo- that mo- during the undergrad, <laughs> I was right. kind of dealing with. Cause, because it was because suddenly there was this massive identity shift for me. You know, I wasn't just somebody who sang for fun anymore. It was like my job and it was my identity. Yeah. I put a huge amount of pressure on myself. And then the opera course is kind of, a bit of a sh- supposed to be a bit of a showcase, really. Yes. You know, it's basically your opportunity to kind of present yourself to the industry to some extent. Whereas I was actually grappling with a lot of really basic issues because mm-hmm. I've never really sung under that kind of pressure, self pressure anyway, before. So, um, what, what kind of, if you if you don't mind sharing, what kind of hmm. basic issues would you include amongst those? I think first and foremost. It was this issue of uh, identity. Mm-hmm. And I think it took me a year or two, really, to kind of puzzle that out. Because I think, for me anyway, if you become too identified with your profession, you know, if you sort of think, well, I just am a violinist or I am a tenor, and that completely defines and kind of sums me up, mm-hmm. uh, that, is, that can be quite unhealthy um i think because it makes the stakes so high and then all you need to do is have a bad day in the practice room or you know do a (laughs) bad audition or a bad concert and you suddenly think well if i can't perform to my satisfaction regularly and you know i am defined by my ability to do that Mm -hmm. then you know you suddenly feel worthless little even a little dent into your confidence you know your your um, confidence about your performing ability or whatever can then have a kind of catastrophic effect on your self-esteem yes you know if you see that as being your whole being so that was a big thing and it took me a couple a year or two to kind of realize that actually that's not altogether healthy because Um, by this point you would have had the identity of a doctor as well yeah exactly it's sort of marrying the two or are you making a clear shift from one identity to the next? Or It was a transition, I think, for me. Um, yeah. In my own head, I was kind of thinking, well, I've done medicine, and now I'm becoming a singer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I, yeah. I'm just laughing. It's like, oh, well, I've, I've done medicine. That's fine. Let's, let's just do something <laughs> else now. <laughs> that's great. And so, so, yeah, that's, how, that's what was going on in my head. And I think... Mm. 
the way I found my way out of that, basically, well, well, first of all, I realized I was just having a bit of a miserable time. And I wasn't enjoying singing and I wasn't singing well, you know, and I thought, well, this is, this is rubbish. You know, I used to sing much better when I didn't try so hard mm-hmm. <laughs> and I didn't yes. care about it that much. And actually, conversely, I'd always kind of found medicine relatively easy, I think, because I didn't, it wasn't a calling for me in the way that, you know, that I kind of envisaged singing. It yes. was just something I did. And it was something that, you know, I just, you know, I just jumped through the hoops in order to do what I needed to do. But it wasn't, it was just like, you know, what I did for money. It wasn't me. It wasn't kind of my purpose on this earth. Yeah. And would you say medicine then in a way was sort of second nature without realizing it? Even though you, you had the passion for music. Yeah, I really, I really think the, I really think the difference was that I just didn't put that much pressure on it. You know, medicine, it, it, it came very easily because I didn't try too hard, basically. Mm. And I suppose maybe I had some natural ability for it, but, it's, but it was more, you know, when I was at medical school, basically, my mindset was, well, I just want to have a really good time at medical school and I want to pass. I wasn't bothered about coming top of the year. I wasn't bothered about kind of pushing myself to the absolute limit of what yeah. I could you know, physically do in medicine. I just wanted to, I just wanted to pass. Whereas singing was singing is then different, isn't it? You know, if in music, you know, you're sort of striving to be the absolute best you can be. Yes, all and the time. It was, all the time, exactly. And it that was a case of too much pressure. And um, plus, I suppose I was trying to, I was comparing myself to my colleagues. You know, many of whom had been at music college for eight years already. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and were kind of much more um, at home with all this. Obviously, you know, they kind of come to terms with this ages ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, a, it was a combination of things that made things quite tough. And I say the way I got out of it was to re- just to remind myself that actually, and this is probably where the medicine helped me a bit, to remind myself that actually I was only doing it because I enjoyed it. Yes, first and I, foremost. Yeah, well, entirely, actually. I mean, you know, I, the reason I sing is because I love to sing. You know, and I, the reason I want to pursue this career is because I love almost every element of it. and. If I ever lose sight of that, you know, if it ever becomes just miserable and I'm not enjoying it and, you know, I start to think that I'm doing it for, I don't know, to get kind of external praise or to get uh, famous or, you know, to make some <laughs> money or whatever, the, yeah. you know, all these kind of things, you know, those aren't the reasons that I do it. Yeah. And if I forget that and I get overly focused on these kind of uh, external validators, you know, then it does become quite a miserable experience, you know, mm-hmm. it becomes something that's not, it's not really about the um, really pure enjoyment experience of the sort of process of doing it. Um, yeah. And basically when I kind of came to realise that, I mean, I also um, changed teacher. I kind of had a teacher who wasn't a very good fit in my first year. And that was kind of the other major mental hurdle, I think, was that I, they were somebody who actually had, their attitude to singing was similar to mine. and not very helpful <laughs> for me. It was, it was an issue of singing being a very intellectual exercise and being kind of very, you know, the harder you try, the faster you'll progress kind of thing. It, my singing became completely unnatural. You know, having been a kind of very natural, happy singer, but when I came, when I arrived at <laughs> music college, which is why I got a place, you know, a year later, I was just unbelievably tense, you know, really kind of rigid, 
you know, on stage, just, you know, completely incapable of communicating or being a character or anything like that, because I was just, my head was totally full of kind of technical, anatomical ideas and stuff. Yeah, and constantly analysing as you're going on. Absolutely, absolutely. Analysing and, you know, never, never just being present and kind of allowing anything to happen, like constantly trying to force yes. you know, a million different things that wants to happen. So then I've changed to a teacher called Nucha Fortule, who... Mm-hmm was just kind of the opposite and had such a helpful mindset kind of way of being and helped me with both of those things actually you know she re- she's an incredibly joyful person who really focuses on enjoying life I think and in, and you know enjoying her singing and enjoying the music and everything plus the way she thinks about singing you know it's really just about well she understood that what I needed was to be a was to think less <laughs> yes. and allow more. And she really, really helped me simplify things and to help me kind of release my natural voice and do what do what felt naturally right, you know, and kind of and always just encouraging me in the right direction. But it was really it was very the mental approach was completely opposite. So yeah, after and then I studied with her for two years and left music college and just felt felt brilliant. You know, I was really enjoying my singing. Even, and, you know, really enjoying the whole process and progressing, you know, really happily and naturally and at my natural pace. And it felt great. And then I kind of left music college and had an absolute dream first year out of music college. I basically had a whole year's worth of work, which was a massive surprise to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I did some great things. And then, you know, working is kind of even, you know, when you've, when you've come out of music college and you've got kind of the basics sorted, you know, I, and I... I slightly hesitate to use the word technique because it's maybe not that helpful for me. Right. But I suppose, I mean, if you if you were to define technique, I suppose it would be kind of the thoughts or the process that you have to go through in order to allow yourself to sing or to perform consistently, you know, on demand. Which And, and that will be different for each person. Totally. Yes. totally. And for some people, maybe that will be a very anatomical analytical process that gets them there for me i think I, I my mind is too much in that direction and, and i think i had a bit of a misconception coming from medicine that it would be the same you know in medicine you just kind of memorize lots of stuff get lots of kind of models really clear in your head and then you're good to go but obviously singing is a, a physical thing you know it's much more like being an athlete you know you have to train your body yes. uh, and allow your body to kind of follow its own path it's really not kind of egocentric analytical growth process. And it's, and it's constantly responding to what's happening in the moment as opposed to looking at all the, the data, I suppose, if you're seeing a patient, looking at all the data, all the information they give you and then give an answer to their question. You know, yeah. it's, it's not the same. Yeah, no, it's a very different process. And I think actually now having you know, met a lot of singers at music college and out, out of music college, I think it's something that often people with academic backgrounds struggle with quite a lot when they come to singing. Mm-hmm. There are quite a lot of those, you know, people who've done completely different undergrad degrees and then come to do postgrads. And I find quite often the ones that are really kind of meticulous and, you know, intellectually minded and have come from a degree, you know, a previous course where it's all about kind of, you know, in, intense kind of intellectualization. The actual physical act of natural released singing may be slightly difficult for them um, because they think it's the same. They yeah. think that they can just kind of rationalise it out and process it out in that sort of way. 
which I think is where that whole stereotype of, you know, great singers being a bit thick, (laughs) (laughs) which is obviously completely untrue. Exactly. Um, But I think, but there are a lot of really natural singers who just are not, they don't have that kind of analytical egocentric mindset. They're much more accepting and they're much more able just to kind of let things happen, I suppose. Yeah. In, the, in the same way that, you know, a footballer could be an absolute genius at football and get no GCSEs or whatever. Yeah. You know, because it's a completely different type of intelligence, isn't it? Yeah. And I, su- yeah. I suppose it's the, the whole thing also, if it ain't broke, you know, mm. why, why do anything about it if it works and it's yeah, yeah, dependable yeah. and it's healthy? I mean, for me, I feel like I, you know, I watch people like Pavarotti, you know, lots and, and lots of my idols. You know, many of them are that are that kind of singer. You know, they're just so, and I've learned a huge amount from them. You know, from these mm-hmm. natural singers. I sort of think, like, well, what? Are, why are they able to just kind of do it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and my theory is because you know, often often they just don't overthink it. You know, yeah. they just sing in the most obvious, easy, you know, easiest way. They just think yeah. like, well. I just opened my mouth and that seems like the, the most obvious way to do it. Do it that way. You know? And I think you do need that in singing. It has to be that natural. Yeah. And, and we also, I suppose what we see, especially of the, it's different now because people tend to sort of record the process, publicly mm. document the process. Um, it's, it's wonderful. But I think that's really brilliant because we can so easily get into this, get the impression that, you know, great singers just kind of, popped up exactly <laughs> yeah, exactly they were just immediately able to sing the most demanding repertoire and they were just gifted and it was it, they never had to work or struggle whereas yeah. actually when you read most of their biographies you know you read Pavarotti's I mean his voice didn't come together until he was 30 yeah and he was and you know not long before that he was going to give he was going to give up because he said it was just hopeless he thought he was getting pre-nodules he trained to be a teacher you know he he basically gave up yes and then that's when things kind of came together and I and I suppose it's it's a similar sense of him just letting go. It's like, well, you know, and not overthinking it, and that's when it all fell into place. I suppose. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think I feel like I've gone through the same process. To be honest, you know, really, really overthinking it massively. Mm-hmm. So, do you <laughs> feel that you sort of came full circle now? Because you said you you arrived as a very natural just want of a better phrase, happy-go-lucky singer at, at opera school. And then at the end of it, you were sort of tied up in knots, but yeah. with lots of work. Do you feel you've now come full circle? By the end of it, I was in a good place again. By the, yes. by the, by the end of it, I, the, la- the last year I spent at opera school was fantastic. Yes. I, was, I, was, I was really happy. Yeah, in a way, I've come full circle. I suppose the difference thing is now that I've, having been through the ringer, I yes. feel like I learned a hell of a lot from that. And actually, even though I was singing quite naturally and easily, I had these misconceptions. I think, you know, on some level, I thought it was an intellectual ex- exercise and that all I needed to do was read all the books and yeah. just be a great singer. Yeah. And it was really useful for me to try that, you know, go quite a long way down that blind alley yes. and realise that it was just the path to absolute misery to come out of it again, you know, that really forced me to kind of come face to face with some basic misconceptions I had about how singing worked. It was useful. So I certainly feel like it was a good process. 
I've gained a huge amount of self-knowledge from that from that process. I wouldn't change it to be honest. You know, even though it was tough, actually, that it's made. It, I have such a stronger kind of sense of self and mm-hmm. and belief in this in this way of singing now, in, the, in a kind of natural way of singing. It, and also, my whole attitude to life, to be honest, you know, it's kind of made me think that actually the way I want to progress through life is in this kind of joyful almost kind of effortless way where I'm not constantly criticizing myself and beating myself up and trying too hard and trying to force things to happen faster than they naturally want to. Yeah. Trying to learn to be a more accepting person. And let things happen organically. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because at the end of the day, whatever you're doing, you can only progress as fast as nature intends, you know? Exactly. And the way you're going to progress the fastest is by you progressing at a happy natural pace where you're not feeling overly stressed you're Mm -hmm. not kind of being really self-critical and beating yourself up and feeling miserable yeah you're actually feeling happy and enjoying the process and just allowing it to happen and that's that's the kind of optimal way of learning and developing yes i think sorry i I keep on going back to your your medical career because i i just find the parallel fascinating Firstly, I want to ask about, there's two questions I've got about your medical career. But firstly, I want to ask, what did you, did you specialize at any point in medicine? No, so what I did was um, my foundation year. So that's, you do six different jobs. Um, right. And then at that point, you normally specialize. And that's yeah. when I went to opera school. You, you specialized in stage. Specialized in opera school. <laughs> <laughs> but I did continue to work while I was at opera school. So that was obviously very useful from a financial point of view. Of course. Um, it supported me the, all the way through. Mm-hmm. I was working at the weekends and then the holidays. And actually, you know, that was a helpful thing for me as well because that helped take the pressure off a bit. You know, when I was really getting into my own, own head and getting really overwrought and stressed out and, you know, just worrying about whether this, whether my A flat was really like as free as, you know, Benjamin O'Geely's <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and to go and do a shift in an A&E and this sort of thing like well actually nobody here cares about opera <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and and you know I can, I can there's something else I can do and it, it, was, it was really nice just to think, do something completely different totally yeah. different world um, and I think that was really useful because yeah. it can be quite easy a bubble to just start to think that well the only thing that matters is music and the only thing that matters is my performance and this like end of term exam and you know, how I compare to this other person in my year. You know, all these things can get massively blown out of proportion. Exactly, yeah. Because the world, you know, you're in a small world. It's a little bit like when we've been in isolation at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all these kind of little things and annoyances with people we live with and stuff suddenly become so massive, you know, because our worlds are tiny. Exactly, um, yes. And music college can be like that. So I think anything that you can do to kind of keep a connected awareness to the world outside is very healthy. Yeah. Thing. And medicine definitely did that. Did that for me. And then, of course, because you you Still brought does. up exactly, and because you brought up the isolation, so lockdown happened. The the pandemic, etc., and lockdown happened. And then, the next time we saw you, you were singing in a hospital. Yeah. Tell me about that. How did yeah, that come exactly. about? So as I was saying, you know, I left um, 
left academy in a really, really good place. I then had a brilliant first year and I got worked at Garsington Opera and Covent Garden and in Sicily and in France, doing really great stuff, really, really enjoying it, learning a huge amount. And then, yeah, the coronavirus pandemic struck and everything got cancelled as it did, did for everybody. <laughs> and to be honest, I, a couple of months after that, I was coming up to my five-year revalidation for medicine and I wasn't planning on revalidating because uh, I had, I was being able to support myself by singing and, you know, obviously nothing's guaranteed, but I was feeling kind of optimistic about it and I thought, you know, yeah. I, I feel like things are, are going to hopefully just keep coming, keep improve, keep growing from here. And, but yeah, everything, everything got cancelled. At the same time, this call went out for doctors. You know, they were getting yeah. these doctors back from retirement and there was this kind of desperate need for doctors. Um, so it was, it was the obvious thing to do just to go back. Yeah. And what I've mostly been doing during opera school is working in A&E, which is kind of particularly what they needed as well. Yes. So I went back to where I trained, which is northeast London, and was just working in A&Es and various hospitals around there. Yeah, so the singing, I mean, I, it's something I'd always done, to be honest. I mean, particularly at Christmas and stuff like that. Okay. Um, because, well, it was just a bit of fun, really. You know, if ever there was time when things were a little bit quiet, I'd, I'd sing a song. And people really liked it. You know, patients loved it. Uh, staff loved it. And it was, because I guess it's just a bit unexpected. You know, nobody expects. I mean, in general, people are generally kind of quite blown away when they hear an opera, an opera voice live. Yes. Because a lot of people never have, you know, certainly not in like a, an enclosed, in a small space. Exactly. Um, and, I, and I suppose just for listeners who might not have seen the, the video, you're in your scrubs. You know, yeah, yeah. Well, in the first one, I was actually wearing a mask as well. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So I just, I mean, basically on when you do a shift and if you're new, people tend to say like, you know, where do you work normally? Where have you come from? Yeah. And I said, well, I work as an opera singer normally. Yeah. And, you know, obviously that was a bit unusual. People say, yeah. oh, go on, and, you know, give us a chin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Are you really an opera singer? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> give us a tune. Let's, let's just hear it. An outrageous claim like that. So I sang and somebody filmed it and put it on Twitter Yeah, uh, with a suitably kind of uh, <laughs> exciting uh, tweet. I don't know. I, I, I hadn't really been on Twitter before this. So I didn't right. Really <laughs> And yeah, it got, it got a huge amount of attention, you know, I think because, well, first of all, everybody was stuck at home and there was no news at the time. And also any news that there was, was about the COVID outbreak and there was a yeah. huge amount of focus on health workers. And yeah, it got, it got sort of 200,000 views or something in, in a couple of days, and, yes. which was amazing. And then suddenly all these media companies started getting in touch and um, it's been absolutely insane. I mean, I've been yeah. on... Channel 4, ITV, BBC, Austra I've been on TV in Australia, been on loads of radio shows, been on radio in Korea. I'm getting on this fan mail from South America now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really brilliant. And really lovely. I mean, and I kind of, so I mean, I kept singing and people were, and more people were posting more videos and they were all spreading all over the place. And it was really, really, it's been really, really touching actually. I mean, at first it was kind of just a bit, you know, a bit, a bit of fun and a bit exciting. But then, you know, I started getting some fan, fan, fan mail, that's what it is, from people. 
And particularly this lady, so this lady from Argentina sent me this really long voice message, first in Spanish, and then she did it again in English. Yeah. <laughs> and I was, really, I was so moved by this. She, she said that I, thank you so much for your singing. I, she said, I, I don't know you, but I feel like from the way you sing that you're a, you're a good person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that you have a lot of, and that you have a lot of love to give, basically. And she said, thank you. You know, this, your singing just gave me a moment of peace mm-hmm. and took me out of, you know, all my kind of, everything that I'm stressed about and worried about. And I was so, so touched by that because I just thought, you know, that's actually... Every, like those are all the reasons that I, I sing. You know, that's yeah. every, everything that I hope for, you know, with my singing. I hope that I can just be honest, that I can be a sincere representation of myself mm. and my musicianship, and that that can just come out in what I do. And I hope that that allows people to have an emotional experience, you know, to bring them into the present, to make them, take them out of their kind of chaotic you know, a uh, stressful world. Give them a moment, really. And that's, that's, mm. and to hear somebody say that that's what I've done for them, you know, in Argentina, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely mind blowing. And, and I, I sent her a message back saying, you know, that has given me, that has been such an amazing encouragement for me to mm. keep singing because it makes me think that it's, it's, it's got a, that, that I'm doing, yeah, it makes me feel like I'm doing the right job. You know, that's exactly, that's yeah. exactly why, that's exactly what I would hope to. That people would, would feel so I'm very happy about that because I suppose when we go on stage well on stage in a theatre or in a concert hall that is what we hope we would do in some way mm-hmm. and by having taken it out of the usual venue it was actually highlighted that you did touch somebody and many people in a really personal way and especially at a time where everybody needed some something positive that must be really um, heartening yeah it really is i mean it felt um, very special and yeah i mean as i said i think a lot of you know the whole kind of sensationalist aspect of it is it got a lot to do with the fact that people are bored <laughs> and there's nothing else going on <laughs> you know, i've got no illusions about that and it's just a bit novel you know having a sort mm. of like oh here's a here's a doctor singing opera you know but yeah, actually, to, to hear that actually, you know, from a lot of for a lot of people, actually, it really touched them actually, and that's and that's that's exactly what I would hope to achieve in live performance. You know, mm-hmm. that's yeah. why, you know, you know, the cringy times when people come up to you after concerts and kind of say stuff to you, <laughs> <laughs> all the absolute kind of like gut punch things they can say to you, like oh. Sounded very difficult or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> if you only knew how hard I work for that. <laughs> but you know what I would always really like to hear from anyone in the audience would just be sort of, you know, thank you for giving me a really special moment. You know. Yeah. That's, that's what I. That's what I'd really like to. Yeah. Take. Do you think that audiences feel they, when it's in the normal theater concert hall? setup do you think audiences feel that that they could that they can say those things or do performers whether it's the performance intention or not do they become a little bit distanced and therefore the audience doesn't necessarily feel they can open up like that 
Whereas in this situation, the field was open for just that because it was at a difficult time and everybody was emotional in one way or another. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, mean, I think there's something quite exciting about taking music outside of the normal uh, approved performance space, particularly if it's in a kind of natural, spontaneous way. Yeah. You know, I mean, the whole sort of like flash mob thing <laughs> can be great, but can also be a little bit kind of cliche, you know. Yes. But it's something I've always loved, actually, this thing you can do as a, if, I mean, particularly as a singer, because you haven't got an instrument to carry around. Mm-hmm. But, you know, potentially you can just bring music to any situation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Whether yeah. people like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> but there is something really special about, and I do complete, I completely agree that actually when you slightly catch people off guard and they're not sat down, you know, with a program in front of them, you know, feeling slightly awkward if they don't necessarily know the social etiquette of the situation and that sort of thing. Yeah, is that those barriers, there are some barriers in the whole sort of formal concert setting, I think, absolutely. And, and those barriers aren't necessarily there if you just, well, they're not, I mean, if you just sing in, in A&E. Exactly, and I think that's probably what people, people respond to. And I think also in this time, you know, now that we're having to kind of rethink how we deliver music and how we reach our audiences, it's an interesting time to consider how we go about doing that. And it could be an interesting opportunity, actually. I mean, it, you know, whether, for sort of outdoor performances. Yeah. And I do, th- I do think anything that can potentially shake up the um, traditional interaction is, is exciting. You know, in many ways, I think, you know, a big part of my job as a performer is to try and break that down. Yeah. You know, initially when you come up on stage to do, like Roddy Williams does this amazing thing because he's so fantastic in, in song recitals. Like yeah. he just immediately puts everybody at ease and makes it seem like the most natural thing in the world. A friend of mine asked him about it. She said, like, how do you, how do, you do this naturally? And he said, well, the first thing I do when I come on stage is I just sort of smile at everybody in the audience, you know, yes. <laughs> and just look them <laughs> in the eye and sort of acknowledge this is weird. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is a bit but, strange, but now we're all in the situation together and so let's, let's have a good evening. Yeah, and we agreed all to be here. <laughs> let's just agree it's strange and get that yeah. out of the way and yeah. move on. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think that's, yeah, you know, a big part of your job is to kind of break through that initial barrier, you know, that kind of formality. And you want, and I think in, you know, great performances and great performers, they achieve that, you know, there's, there's suddenly, there's no barrier, you know, you, the audience are on stage with you, they're living every moment with you. Yeah. They're, you're completely, you've got this, you know, main line of kind of uh, communication between you. Who made it strange? Who made this concept of standing up and sharing something beautiful, sometimes something upsetting? You know, all these emotions, who made it strange? Is it the Richard Wagner? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Just so so you were prepared for that question. (laughs) There's an answer. (laughs) I think, um, I mean, that's obviously not, that would be unfair. But, well, you know, it's hundreds of years, I think, of Mm. formality. I suppose the fact that, you know, concerts come out of a courtly history, they've been formalized, you know, the whole history of it has all this kind of formal baggage. 
mm-hmm. which can make it quite stilted, you know, because everybody turns up for a performance and it's quite rigid in terms of, you know, what the audience are allowed to do and what performers are allowed to do and how much interaction is allowed. And I think, yeah, I mean, from what I've read, you know, in different periods of history, things were very different. I mean, you know, in Mozart's day, people would kind of stand up and applaud if they liked a bit. Yeah. The symphonies, you know, certain, let alone being silent in between the movements. still <laughs> absolutely bizarre. I mean, yeah. it's so weird when you think about it. You know, obviously, there's, sometimes it's appropriate, but sometimes it's really not. You know, when you get to the end of it, most romantic sonatas and there's a huge... <laughs> <laughs> Am I supposed to do something? You know, because <laughs> it's you're meant, to, you're, meant, you're meant to clap. You know, that's completely rubbish. And exactly. the whole kind of treatment of it as, you know, this kind of sacred rite, you know, with a huge amount of kind of rules is, is, is weird. And, and, I, and I love it when people uh, mess with that and kind of try and unsettle that. Because it puts a lot of people off as well. You know, hmm. I, it, it just upsets me so much when I see people at the proms, you know, who might clap at the wrong time or something and they get shamed by all the support. Oh. <laughs> you know, all the people. That, and I just think, like, God, you know, how can we possibly think that we, we're opening the doors of classical music to people if actually we're just going to behave like complete snobs and alienate anybody who tries to come and, and join us, you know? Yeah, especially if we keep on talking about communication and reaching out, etc., the audience's communication is they, they might be one person that in that moment, at the end of the first movement of a piano concerto, that finishes really um, gloriously. That person is just moved to just show their excitement, their appreciation, mm-hmm. their connection with that moment mm-hmm. by applauding. Yeah. Who, who are we to say you're not allowed to feel this until I tell you you're allowed to feel this moment. That's just... Well, you know, one of the best performances I've ever been to, I think, from that point of view particularly, was a school's performance of Madame Butterfly at Covent Garden a few years ago. Yes. It was basically kids from sort of 8 to 11, I think. And obviously they didn't know any of the rules and it was just electric. You know, and they they sat there and listened, you know, thousands of kids, you know, they were absolutely wrapped by what was going on on stage. Yeah. But, you know, at the end of the second act, they all got up because they thought it was the end. Oh. <laughs> and, you know, and when exciting things happened, they would kind of whisper to each other. And, and um, you know, and when Pinkerton came on at the end, they booed him. Like, of course they did. Great. <laughs> and it was just amazing to hear a much kind of less inhibited response to the music. It was this really electric atmosphere. And you obviously get more of that in other cultures as well. You know, you listen yeah. to... Italian, you know, I've listened to a lot of um, old bootleg recordings from Italian theatres and stuff, and obviously yeah. they interact a hell of a lot, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're very vocal. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But I, I do prefer that, to be honest. You know, I'd rather have an exchange going on. And I like, I like that at least in an, an opera, it's slightly less like that. You know, you're allowed to clap after an aria and you're allowed to... Yeah. Inter- you know, it's funny that that's, it's just allowed in opera for some reason. Yeah, uh, and in, in ballet as well. I mean, if yeah. if there was this huge solo that that was danced, yeah, people applaud. And actually, if you didn't applaud, yeah, it's frowned upon. So yeah. you know, no wonder people who aren't necessarily as regular to the theatre 
as we yeah. might be, um, no wonder they're confused and yeah. feel out of place. So it's absolutely our job to make them feel at home and acknowledge this. This is weird and we're in it together. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. But yeah, I think as you were saying, you know, it's, um, no, it feels very special for me to kind of, um, I love to perform in slightly weird situations. Mm-hmm. And I think particularly, I suppose, you know, obviously there was this sense of historical significance as well. You know, it's, it's obviously an amazing time for everybody on earth, pretty much. You know, everybody's lives have been completely disrupted and a huge amount of anxiety and fear and boredom. So, if, yeah, it does feel if to, to kind of be, be part of that and to, feel, and to feel like that's been healing for some people mm-hmm. is amazing. I mean, it certainly has been for me. You know, I've been experiencing all the anxiety and, and fear yeah. along with everybody else, you know, and so obviously all my medical colleagues. So it's really special to kind of to be able to sing for them. And it's, and it's special for me as well. You know, it's a, re- it's a real it's a way of kind of processing and... and and yeah, healing. I mean, it sounds kind of a cliche, but I, I do believe that. I think you know, it's, it's music is immensely healing. And I think when I think when people are suffering, actually, it's kind of an opportunity to really put music to use. Yeah, actually, in a, in a kind of way that we maybe don't when we're um, everyone's quite comfortable and formal, and it's it's just another day. I th- um, I think also the fact that we are we are sharing emotions and frames of mind much more openly at the moment because on the one hand we need to and I think also suddenly everybody feels that they're able to do so. I think it's great that we can do that now but I, for myself I hope that we can take that forward post-pandemic you know that that because it's so easy i i don't know what your your thoughts are on this but it's so easy for musicians to be put on a sort of um well artists in general to be put on a pedestal and oh but they feel things differently than the mere mortals i'd say with um trepidation but emotions are everybody experiences all these emotions some people are just better at voicing what they're feeling mm. i mean well, do I you think this you know, gives our, us a better our, opportunity our as performers our job is to to do that isn't it you know it's to break down those barriers and allow a completely open sharing of of emotion you know that's i think that's what all the work we put in that's what it's for isn't it you know that's what we hope to achieve yeah it's an immense privilege to kind of be given the time and space to work on something that is so personally fulfilling. Mm-hmm. But equally, yeah, it's our job to kind of give that to other people as well. You know, I think if we're peculiarly adept at kind of sharing, you know, it's that, that's the point of it, is to, is to yes. help other people kind of to share and to, to feel the same, feel the feelings that they need to feel. But I completely agree. I think anything that creates this sense of otherness between artists and the people they serve mm-hmm. is a disservice to everybody you know it kind of just defeats yeah. the point of uh, of art and i think any, anything that you know puts artists on a pedestal and puts their audience somewhere else is awful 
Yeah. It's really, you know, I, I just couldn't agree less with kind of elitism and exclusive exclusivity. I think mm-hmm. um, we really need to open things up. I really agree, but I think you know a lot of people are learning a lot about themselves and everything during this pandemic. Yeah, and I hope that we, yeah, as you say, these are things that we we keep. Yeah, you know, times of trial and, and suffering and introspection and and reflection on kind of everything that we do and how we do it. It's painful and it's difficult, and mm. it's a massive opportunity for gaining self knowledge. Yeah. And I, th- I think it's also an opportunity for both parties, those who fund the arts, but also those who create the arts and need the funding. Mm. And I'm talking on a bigger scale, not just yeah. um, arts councils, but like governments, etc. Mm. And that connecting to education. Mm. I think this this is really an opportunity for everybody to just change the conversation because it's mm. it's always sort of a a fight for one or the other whereas yeah. i think this is our moment to show as you've done already how you can use art in a different sphere i so agree nico and i'm really pleased to hear you say that actually because i think you know obviously there's a lot of doom and gloom yeah. going around <laughs> things that you're in a very but I would absolutely love if we could change the conversation about what the point of art is in this country, you yeah. know. And it seems like often, you know, obviously we need money. I mean, there's no, there's no arguing about that. Yeah. But, you know, often art is kind of reduced to money. You know, a lot of the arguments for, get, you know, for support from the government now is saying like, oh, you know, all these organisations are economically viable and, you know, mm-hmm. theater, West End theatres are making huge profits and stuff. You know, this and driving the UK economy, you know, this, and I understand that we do need to talk in the language of money <laughs> yeah. in this capitalist society to kind of get the attention of the people who control the money. And maybe it's too subtle and too difficult to kind of actually try and change the conversation to, this is about quality of life. You know, this is about mm-hmm. giving fundamental quality and meaning to society, you know, really enriching people's lives and transforming people. I wonder, I mean, I wonder if maybe that, maybe that could be talked about in, maybe that could be more of the package. Yes. Selling. You know, obviously there is a lot of talk about delivering education and about improving representation for ethnic minorities Mm -hmm. and societal development agendas and that sort of thing. And that's all fantastic and that should all be part of it. But I think we don't talk enough about the actual (laughs) <laughs> it's what's so hard to pin down, isn't it? But the real yeah. transformative power of art, you know, the fact that it completely changed the quality of people's lives. Yeah. And you're saying that it's difficult to put it down. I think that is the crux of it. I think the, the bigger idea of, uh, when I say education, I don't mean only going into a school no, or no, kids, I got, I got but I mean yes. that artists educate the funders. Mm but also the funders educate the artists, you know, mm. that, that there's an understanding of, well, this is why, as a funder or a business person, why I need to know how you're going to tick these boxes. Mm-hmm. But vice versa, mm. I can only tick those boxes if you understand what the emotion 
or the enrichment is for people beyond beyond the dollar signs or the pound signs or yen yeah. signs, whichever sign you want to put in front of it. And I, I think this is, this is the okay, time to that, start that conversation. That's, that's our job, isn't it? You know, actually, we need to constantly convince people of the worth. Mm-hmm. You know, actually, through the quality of our work and our desire to share it with people, we need to be to- always demonstrating our own usefulness. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's it's difficult. I mean, people shy away from it. I think because it's hard to it's hard to express. Mm-hmm. It's hard to express in words. It's and it's easier. emotional. Yeah. 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 That's that's the other thing. You know, there are all, all these taboos we have to get through of um people not wanting to talk about thoughts, you know, feelings and emotions and spirituality and kind of a deeper connection to to life. Yeah. You know, that's it's um yeah. There are lots again, lots of sort of barriers there. Yeah, it's fascinating that we we often, on the one hand, we we can very strongly and passionately talk about this, but on the other hand, people can also refer to it as all the airy fairy things. (laughs) But but we all experience these airy fairy things, and it's because they're difficult to pin down that they remain airy fairy, but nonetheless, very very important fairies. For yeah, I think exactly <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, it's kind of the whole point, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. and I suppose that, that slightly brings me back to medicine in that, you know, medicine often is about extending quantity of life. Yes. But we don't have much, we don't really address quality of life so much. Whereas the arts, it's all about quality of life, isn't it? You know, it's about the yeah. point of being alive. It's about what, you know, what, what is, what's quality? positive experience what's what's what is a good life what's and you know really i think when you really think about it it's all the airy fairy things that you were kind of talking about you know it's actually about how it's being connected to the people around us about being able to express and receive emotion and kind of in getting getting a rich deep understanding of our whole being yeah. you know that's what quality of life is about and actually interestingly the moments in medicine that were really special to me, the thing that I love the most about that job would actually kind of confirmed for me the fact that I wanted to do singing mm-hmm. was that um, it was these special moments in medicine where, you know, not often be really terrible moments. You know, there'd be moments when I'd be having to explain to somebody that their relative wasn't going to survive or having, having to break bad news often. But in kind of handling those moments really honestly and really openly and without any kind of barriers, you could really transform those moments into kind of amazing moments, you know. And people were so appreciative, you know, even though you were delivering sometimes terrible news, you know, they would just say sort of thank you so much for for just telling me the way it was, you know, being so honest and being so sympathetic. So I suppose it's that. That's what I really, what I really live for. Really, like that's what I'd love to make my work about. Is how do I, how do I have, how do I create that? You know, yes. how do I get rid of all of those barriers and just have those amazing moments mm-hmm. with people? And I think that's what we all kind of want and need as well. You know, that's what draws people to the arts. Absolutely, they feel that. So yeah, that kind of brings it. That kind of brings it together for me. That's why. That's what I loved about medicine. It's what I love about music and it's actually what I think I can do better through music, you know, for yes. more people. 
So that's kind of what's brought me to where I am today. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Alex, thank you so much for sharing so generously all your ideas and just your story and for being so inspiring and for bringing just solace to so many people in this time. And I look forward to hearing you on stage once we are back in the setups to be able to to be back in theatres or in a park somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of What Would Mozart Do? If you want to hear more, you can listen to other episodes on iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to get in touch to ask some questions for future guests or want to join in the conversation by being a guest yourself, you can write to me at info at whatwouldmozartdo.com.